All right, everybody, I'd like you to stick your left hand out like this. We're going to sing together this morning. We're going to sing the song, Bind Us Together. Uh, if you're visiting with us, follow along. You'll catch on soon, I'm sure. Remember, we're going to clap together. You're going to clap your person's hand on your right side, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and down twice on your hand. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg. That's good. Here we go. This is not too bad. All right, we're going to sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. Oh, very good, very good. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, we sing, we pray, we greet one another, we read the Bible, and we devote about half of the time that we're together, we devote more than half even, to looking at a very specific passage of Scripture with focused eyes. We believe that this is God's word, and we believe that our head, the head of the body, the Lord Jesus, speaks to us through it. So we give very careful attention to it. And this morning, the paragraphs that come under our attention for focused consideration are in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the second Thessalonians chapter 3 is where I want to direct your attention. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 6 through verse uh, 15. We're going to look at the, probably the longest passage of Scripture that we've looked at yet in Second Thessalonians. This is the biggest chunk that we're going to consider. But then next week, uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish Second Thessalonians, uh, and then for the month of December we'll be considering Christ's birth. But Second um, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 is where we're going to read today. Here is what the scriptures uh, say, and we read it in expectation that the Lord Jesus would speak to us this morning. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves, you, you know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order uh, to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and eat 
and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. This past June, the White House Council on Economic Advisors released a report. It garnered some attention in the press, and uh, it, it highlighted a trend that economists have recently noted in the United States economy, namely men are missing from the workforce. Uh, here's the, how the Washington Post, Post reported on the story. It begins with a lot of statistics. The story is called, Why America's Men Aren't Working. Uh, listen here. The national unemployment rate has fallen by more than half since the nation emerged from the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. It peaked at 10% in 2010 and stood at just 4.7% last month. That's mostly good news. Private employers have added more than 14 million jobs. About 2 million people have been out of a job for six months or longer, uh, far too many, but only a quarter of the number of long-term unemployed people seven years ago. By almost every measure, the labor market has made incredible progress. But there's one statistic that has been vexing economists. The size of the nation's workforce, known as the labor force participation rate, the number of people working, the percentage of people working, continues to fall. Since the start of the downturn, the percentage of that population that has a job or is looking for one has dropped more than three percentage points to 62.6%, a level not seen since the 1970s. The problem is particularly pronounced among men between the ages of 25 and 54, traditionally considered the prime working years. Their participation rate has been declining for decades, but the drop-off accelerated during the recession. The high mark was 98% in 1954. 98% of the men aged 25 to 54 were working in 1954. Now it's 88%, a 10% decrease, but millions of men. The United States now has the third lowest participation rate for prime age men among the world's developed countries. In other words, Greece, Slovenia, and Turkey have a larger share of men in their workforces than the United States. The United States beats only Italy and Israel. Uh, there is no time in our history when we've had such a low participation in the workforce among men. And think about this, Greece... Greece. You remember Greece? Two years ago, the Greek economy was so bad it was going to collapse the European Union. They have a higher proportion of men at work than the United States does. Now, the key question is why? Why are men not working? Well, there's a number of, solution, a number of, of answers to that question. Um, some of them are favored. You'll like the answer based on your political view. If you're more to the left, you'll pick some that I mentioned. If you're more to the right, you'll favor others. Here are some of the suggestions. Some people say that men aren't working as much as they used to because of the competition with women who have entered the workforce. Uh, some say that men, uh, uh, that this is due to mass incarceration. Uh, the problem is particularly notable among the African-American population, and that's some people say it's mass incarceration. Some people say that men are not working because they're in school or they're staying home to be full-time dads or they're on disability. 
Uh, one proposal says that men aren't working because of fatherlessness in our society. They didn't have a dad that taught them how to work, and so they're not working. Here's, here's actually one of the most common answers to that question, why aren't men working? Uh, this is the most popular uh, mention, uh, answer mentioned during the recent election. The theory is that men are not working because there's not as many factory and construction jobs as there used to be. Um, this uh, may be one of the most um, important consequences of the recession. In fact, some people didn't call it a recession. They called it a he-session because it was so uh, detrimental to jobs uh, usually um, uh, populated by men. There's actually something, though, in the, the White House report that didn't get as much attention as it should have. Um, they asked the men themselves why they weren't working. It's a novel theory. Why don't you have a job? Only 16% of prime, age, prime working age unemployed American men said that they actually wanted a job and were looking for a job. In other words, 84% of unemployed men between the ages of 25 and 54 who are able to work but don't have a job, 84% of them say they don't want a job and they're not looking for a job. It's a source of alarm for economists. It should alarm economists, and it should alarm a country. It concerns us because as followers of Jesus, that represents a massive disconnect between what uh, is happening with many men in our country and what the Bible teaches about the value and dignity of work. We uh, struggle to think wisely about work sometimes. We, we often bounce back and forth between extremes. On the one hand, there's a lot of people who think that work is a necessary evil. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go? Uh, work is just something I have to do in order to get what I really want, to, to, to get what I want to do. There's no meaning, there's no significance in work. A lot of people think that. Um, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians during the Roman era, and in the Roman mindset, hard work was something for the low classes to do. Hard work Hard, sweaty, backbreaking work was only for the poor and for slaves. The good life, the life of those who were worthy of respect and honor, the, the, the life that, was, that everybody wanted of virtue and quality was a life in which you didn't have to work. And see how Paul's writings would conflict with that a bit. Now, there's some people who think that work is meaningless and, and uh, uh, a curse, there's other people, though, who um, seem to treat their work as their god. They idolatrize work. Um, work is the only source of meaning and significance. Work is who they are. It, it defines everything about them. They don't have any identity apart from work. We really struggle to think wisely about work. The passage that we have before us that we read this morning is uh, about work. It's actually about hard work. It's one of the passages in the Bible that helps us understand the value that God places on hard work. It's also one of the most direct chapters, direct passages in all of Paul's letters. I, wonder, I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading, but he says, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's very direct. And then, then he says, if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen to you. He's very strong. Actually, I think one of the reasons he's so strong is because this is the third time he's had to talk to the Thessalonians about work. Uh, I want to uncover what this passage says about work. I want to summarize it 
in uh, three statements that I want to make. But before we do that, we're going to orient ourselves to the text. There's some things in this culture that we need to understand that will help us as we seek to apply uh, this passage. And the first element that I want to orient you to as we think about this is the Roman practice of patronage. The Roman practice of patronage. And the Roman patronage system seems to be in the background of this text. Now, the Roman patronage system was an accepted cultural system of dependency. Patronage describes a relationship between a wealthy person, a powerful person, called an, a patron, and the, the poorer, less impressive, less uh, status, uh, lower status people called the clients. There was the patron and the clients. And your patron could use his money or his power or her influence to pave the way for clients. Sometimes they'd pave the way through court systems or maybe help them get a loan or uh, help them get up, uh, raise their own status. And in exchange for that, the clients had to be available to serve the patron's interests, most often in public. They had to be ready to run errands or publicly cheer for them or, uh, um, I suppose, sometimes mob for them. Uh, they were groupies. They were members of an entourage. Uh, they, um, and sometimes if your patron was wealthy enough, they would give you money occasionally. It's not a real job, but you could get money without actually having a job by hanging on to someone. Uh, there's been some discussion in, in recent uh, days about whether or not people are being hired to protest. There's protests everywhere. Are they being, the people being paid to protest? We... We love the right of free speech. We cherish the right of free speech. But uh, that's not a real job. Um, you're being paid to generate public interest in something that you may or may not actually care about. I think that's what Paul has in mind in this passage because he uses the term busybodies in verse 11. Uh, the NIV wonderfully here uh, uh, retains in its translation a pun, a play on words that's in the text, the Greek text. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. That is, they're involved in other people's business. Then in verse, uh, verse 12 he says, um, you need to settle down, quiet down, um, work quietly, get out of the spotlight, get a job. Now, if that's the case, then I, I wonder if we maybe shouldn't use the word idle in this passage the way the NIV and the ESV does. Verse 6, it says, uh, keep away from every believer who is idle. Idle might not be the best word. Idle does, they're idle in the sense that they don't have a job and they're not working, but they're involved in something. That they're not um, motionless. They're acting irresponsibly. Uh, actually, this word that's translated idle that's used several times in this passage is um, a word that describes somebody in, mili in the military who's out of rank, who's out of step, who's out of, out of, out of place. Um, they're not actually working. They're just living by this culturally normative practice of dependency. Uh, the New American Standard says they're unruly. Now, um, just a, a brief word here before we move on. Paul says... He commends here a quiet life. He does something similar in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. 
I'd like to remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, that you don't have to be involved in every issue that is before the public eye. You don't have to know what's going on with everyone. You don't have to comment on every news story and be up to date on every scandal or uh, be thrilled or not about every post on social media. You don't have to engage in every argument. There's just this increasing amount of hostility in our culture. People are angry about things that are happening a thousand miles away from them and they can't do anything about it and it really doesn't affect their life that very much much but they're so angry about it and they're typing away on their computers or on their phones and they're ignoring the people that are three feet away just a quiet life paul commends just mind your own business do what god has given you take care of what god has given you in front of you well, there's a second element that's necessary to read these verses well. I think it's the understanding of the Christian practice of charity. The Christian practice of charity. Now, uh, here's something that the Bible very clearly commands. There's this deep impulse in the church to be generous and kind and uh, 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 charitable. In Acts 2, there's a story in the Bible, of course, how no one had any needs in the early church because they were sharing things commonly with each other and selling property to support one another. I'm not sure that was a great long-term strategy. I think they, they were doing that a little bit in the, with the idea that Jesus was going to come back at any minute very soon, and they weren't really thinking long-term. But still, there was just this impulse of generosity there among those early believers. In Acts 6, they distribute bread to the widows who have no other means of support. There's this generosity I think what's happening in this passage is that patronage is rolling over into the church and there are those who are expecting their fellow church members to act as their patrons, to support them. And it's actually wearying to people. I think that's why Paul issued the warning that he did in verse 13. It says, And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Don't wear out in your generosity, even though some people are abusing it. Don't stop. John Calvin wrote about this. He said, However, ingratitude, moroseness, pride, arrogance, and other seemly dispositions on the part of the poor may have a tendency to annoy us or to dispirit us from a feeling of weariness, we must strive nevertheless never to leave off at aiming to do good. The church, this church, receives lots of calls from people who are looking for financial help of some kind. Uh, a number of years ago, somebody called. Uh, it was a Sunday. I was um, in the building maybe after the service, and the phone rang, and I answered the phone. And it was somebody who was looking for help and needed uh, money to um, get his prescriptions. Uh, we never give away cash to anybody who calls and asks for money. Um, but I, I was willing, and I, so I talked to him about it for a little bit, and um, uh, he told me where his pharmacy was. Uh, it was the CVS downtown, and he just couldn't make his copayment. So I went to the bank. We don't keep cash in the building. I went to the bank, and I got some cash out of my account, and I drove downtown to CVS, and I walked in, and I gave it to the pharmacist, and I said, there's this man, here's his name, he's coming for his prescription Here's the money that he owes for his medication. Um, if he doesn't come, here's an envelope. It's got my name and address on it. Would you mail the money back to me? And about 10 days later, my envelope showed up in my mailbox. Um, he called the church for help. 
uh, but never actually went to the pharmacy to get to the drugs that he said he needed. Uh, some of you are in your more suspicious minds. You're thinking he was looking for money for drugs, but not the kind you can get at a pharmacy. There's a man who calls the church occasionally, and we have given him over the years gift cards to the grocery store and uh, Walmart, and, and uh, he comes, um, calls, I hear it from him. And uh, I saw him uh, uh, not too long ago in the newspaper. He had been arrested for solicitation downtown. I don't expect the people who come and ask for help for us to be perfect. It can be wearying trying to help people legitimately, though. Very wearying. Paul's counsel here in this church is uh, stop supporting those who won't work, and he tells them what to do instead. Now, that is a background here. Uh, Here are three truths about hard work from this passage. This is part of a Christian vision of working hard, hard work. Here they are. Number one, hard work is the God-ordained way to meet your needs. Hard work is the way, the God-ordained way to meet your needs. The way he ordains it. How should you get what you need? You should work hard to get what you need. Look at verse 10. This is what Paul has been teaching them. For even when we were with you, this is the first time we gave you this rule the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, just as an aside here for just a moment, there are some people who think that this problem has to do with the Thessalonians and their misunderstanding of the day of the Lord. They think that Jesus has come or he's coming so soon that they should not work anymore, that they should sell everything they have and go on a mountaintop and wait for Jesus to come because he's coming so soon. Uh, That happens occasionally in the United States. Um, uh, I can't remember that pastor's name who just a few years ago, that was his shtick. Uh, he, Jesus was coming and people were selling their houses and quitting their jobs. People think that this is what's happening in Thessalonica. I don't think so because Paul started teaching them about work early in his ministry, even before they had questions about the day of the Lord. This is apparently something that's pretty deeply embedded in the church from the beginning. Notice here that the emphasis in this, this verse is this rule is on willingness. People who are able to work but are not willing to work. Those are the people in his uh, thinking here. He's not talking about the ill or the aged or uh, or the the sick, those who are not able to work. He's talking about the able-bodied people. You shall not eat. Actually, it's a a command, a command to the church. The one who is uh, able to work but unwilling to work, don't let them eat. Hard work is not just what Paul taught, it is actually also what Paul modeled for them. There's an unusual amount of focus in this passage on Paul's example. Look again at verse 7. It says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, and here he uses words that no Roman would use of themselves uh, boastfully, We worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
Now, verse 9 continues that Paul, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. We need to think about this more. We're going to talk about it again in, in just a few minutes. But in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has made this argument that he as an apostle has the right to not work uh, beyond his preaching ministry, that he, that he has the right to be supported by the congregations that he serves. Uh, there's just one verse from the chapter, 1 Corinthians 9. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel, but I have not used any of these rights. Now, why did he emphasize that here? I think, remember, the Roman view, high-status people don't work hard. And in Thessalonica, Paul says, I worked hard, but remember, I still am an apostle, and I still have the right to command you. He's upholding his authority as an apostle, even though he didn't use, exercise all of the rights that an apostle has. That's what he's doing here. Instead of exercising his rights, he worked hard. Why? To show them how God has ordained that uh, we should meet our needs. Now, I suppose in one sense this doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? It's not, there's not much uh, apparent holiness in this concept God has just woven this into humanity. This is the way he made the world. This is a, a principle that God has planted in the universe. Um, not, I'm not sure that we need a chapter and verse to understand this. Proverbs 16:26. Listen, the appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. God put nerves. He put nerves that lead from your stomach to your brain. So that when your stomach is empty, your brain will get the signal, and it's a sign to your brain to get up and get a job. God has embedded this into creation. Actually, Scripture consistently argues that there is a connection between work and survival. The two of them go together. And if you sever them at your loss. This is why Christians have consistently been opposed to gambling. Gambling severs that relationship because it separates profit from labor. And we're not opposed to fun and we're not opposed to games. Uh, what we oppose is the promise that gambling makes that gambling never delivers on, that, uh, uh, that uh, the answer to your need is a found in a game that requires no real effort. This severing of work and survival is why we also are sometimes suspicious of governmental programs that further dependency. I know I'm wading into deep waters, aren't I? Um, I, I'm not going to speak in specific terms, but just broadly, followers of Jesus are pro-charity. We want to help people who are sick and suffering and aged and disabled. We, we want, that's an impulse that has been deep within us. We are the ones who for 2,000 years have been starting hospitals and schools and taking care of people. We are very pro-charity, but at the same time, we are anti-separating work from financial support. The best programs that any government could offer affirm that connection between work and survival. You don't serve people well if you sever the connection between their survival and hard work. In 1850, Abraham Lincoln's stepbrother wrote him a letter. His name was John Johnston. And he wrote uh, Abraham Lincoln because he wanted to borrow some money. He, has written, he had written Abraham Lincoln several times before, 
Uh, now he's looking for money to help uh, repay a loan. And here, listen to what Abraham Lincoln wrote to him. Dear Johnston, your request for $80 I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I have helped you a little, you have said to me, we can get along very well now, but in a very short time I find you in the same difficulty again. Now this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. What that defect is, I think I know. You are not lazy and still you are an idler. I doubt whether since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. This habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. It is vastly important to you and still more so to your children that you should break that habit. You are now in need of some money and what I propose is that you shall go to work tooth and nail for somebody who will give you money for it. And to secure you a fair reward for your labor, I now promise you that for every dollar you will between this and the first of May get for your own labor, I will then give you one other dollar. Now, if you will do this, you will soon be out of debt, and what is better, you will have a habit that will keep you from getting in debt again. But if I should now clear you of the debt next year, you would be just as deep in as ever. Affectionately, your brother, A. Lincoln. A wise man. Hard work is the God-ordained means, the God-ordained way to meet your needs. Paul taught the Thessalonians this. He taught it by his teaching, and he taught it by his example. Now, number two, hard work is serious. Hard work is serious. It's not the work itself that's so much serious. It's the, the fact that, that some in the church refuse to do the work, hard work. It's the problem. Take this problem seriously, Paul said. There are people in the church who are not heeding apostolic teaching, and therefore they must receive church discipline. Uh, we're going to stop here for a minute. Paul is, has been talking. We've been talking to the idlers, the irresponsible. Now we're going to talk to the church that has irresponsible people in it. What is the rest of the church supposed to do with these folks? Verse 6, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Verse 14, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Keep away from them. Do not associate with them. Now, we've talked about this recently enough so that you should be familiar with it. Here is a practice that is commanded by the Lord Jesus to local congregations. Following Jesus brings with it implications. What we believe about Jesus makes itself manifest in the lives that we lead. That's, uh, I'll put it another way, your deeds should be in sync with your creeds. What you do should match what you believe. We don't demand perfection from one another, there's, but there's to be consistency. And Paul uses some strong language, language for people who that inconsistency is glaring. Keep away from them. Do not associate with them. Is that, is that unloving and judgmental? That's the objection, isn't it? It's not very tolerant. It's not very accepting, Paul, here. Huh. Actually, the Bible dispenses with those arguments about intolerance and acceptance and judgmentalism. It, it dispenses with those arguments pretty quickly. The, the place in the Bible where Paul talks about this the most, probably, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a case in the church of just gross immorality. And Paul writes to the church, he says, 
What business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Here's the biblical command, brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be judging one another. God will judge those outside. You expel the wicked person from among you. Harsh, intolerant. Apostle Paul, how can you do that? But just a few chapters later, Paul writes one of the most exalted passages about love in all of the Bible. Paul saw no contradiction between the judgment he commands in 1 Corinthians 5 and the love he commends in 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, Hebrews 12 makes that connection explicit. It's only people who aren't loved who are not disciplined. Uh, I think that Paul here, uh, well, look at this, this command, this this combination of commands. Verse 14, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that may, they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Brothers and sisters, there are situations where the New Testament commands us to do this, and we as a congregation are committed to doing it. We don't do it perfectly. I sometimes have led the board of elders slowly, too slowly, in doing this. But this is the standard to which we aspire And Paul, by talking about this here, do not associate with them. I think he's talking about specific fellowship opportunities within the church that the idlers are going to miss out on. This is not shunning. They're still brothers and they're still sisters, but they can't participate in the Lord's Supper anymore. They they can't uh, um, serve in the church Maybe, for example, they can't attend growth group anymore or your accountability group. They're still beloved as brother, but separated. Paul writes something here I think that's very provocative in verse 14. He says, do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. The ancient Roman culture was an honor culture. Your group was more important than you as an individual. It was very important that you were accepted in a group, that you were a part of a group, and and being excluded from a group was a very shameful thing, even a disreputable group like Christians. Paul has the expectation that in Thessalonica, these brothers and sisters would miss something when they were excluded, that it would feel dear to them, that they would experience it as a real loss. I have a lot of cards, little plastic cards in my wallet. You carry a lot of cards around too, I bet. Um, I have a library card that allows me to borrow books. We've used that hard over the years. And I also have a discount card for Pita Pit on Harrisburg Pike. Uh, I, don't, I don't eat there very often. I can't remember the last time that I ate at Pita Pit on Harrisburg Pike. But if the next time I go into Pita Pit, they take my card and say, Divini, you don't eat here often enough, and they cut it apart, it won't really bother me that much. You probably walk to Subway from a Subway somewhere from there. It's not going to bother me. If I go to the library and the librarian sheds my card, there's going to be tears and gnashing of teeth. Uh, here is a level of fellowship in the church that it's when it's missing, the idle man or woman will notice. We were thinking about this. We were talking about this a little bit at our elders meeting on Thursday night and, and how there are some people who question the usefulness of what Paul is talking about here because 
you know, if we just if we do this as a church, exclude someone like this, well, you can just go down the street and join another church. You can just go to another Bible study and, and have fellowship there. But Paul's expectation for the church is that uh, they're so united around Christ and in sync with one another that to be cut off from that is loss. It's real loss. In a healthy congregation, these relationships are being formed. These sort of relationships are being formed. Where we fight for these sort of relationships. There are a few sins that are identified in the Bible that we are to take this seriously. Immorality, gossip, false teaching, and here, a refusal to work. This is serious. Now third here, last notice. Hard work is an expression of love. Hard work is an expression of love. There's a basic turn in this passage. I think it's rooted. This passage is rooted in it. There is a turn in this passage that Paul expects the believers to make, these idlers. They're supposed to turn from being burdens or busybodies to blessings. Or to put it another way, work, from a Christian perspective, is one of the ways that we demonstrate genuine love for other people. It is not a way that we take from people. It is a way that we give to people. You can see this more explicitly, I think, when the second time that Paul addressed it to the church in 1 Thessalonians 2. Look, I wrote some verses down that you can see. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul says, we love you. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. There, those words are again. That we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He loves the Thessalonians, and so he worked hard. Now, here's three ways in which hard work is an act of love. We've already talked about one of them. First of all, it provides a good example. It provides a good example. This is God's ordained way to meet your needs. Show other people that you value the connection that God makes between work and your welfare by working hard. We see this again in Paul's example. Labor, toil, night, day. This is actually quite astounding. Remember, Paul didn't need to work like this. As an apostle, he had the right to the financial support that the church could give him. Or he at least huh, he at least had the option, wouldn't you think, to once or twice a week maybe put his feet up after a long day? Take a day off every now and then? He didn't exercise those rights. Why? Because it was part of his discipleship process. He loved the Thessalonians enough that he was going to work very hard to show them what it means to follow Christ faithfully in your vocation. So it provides a good example. Secondly, hard work commends the gospel to unbelievers. Hard work commends the gospel to unbelievers. Again, we'll go outside of 2 Thessalonians to 1 Thessalonians 4.12. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Unbelievers are supposed to look and say, wow, can you see what the gospel does, what that message of Jesus does to people? It turns them from being loafers, burdens, into to hardworking men and women. That's, that's a good message. Now third, we look at Ephesians 4. Hard work is an act of love in that it enables you to give. It enables you to give. 
Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Stop being a burden. Instead, work hard as an expression of love so that you can serve others, so that you can have enough surplus to give generously to those who are in need. There's a turning in this passage. There's a reorientation in this passage that is basic to the Christian life. And it's a turning, I think, that is a constant struggle. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Naturally, we live for ourselves. That's how we are naturally. Uh, we work for ourselves, we love ourselves, we shop for ourselves, we cook for ourselves, we think of ourselves, the whole world revolves around me, I am the star of my own made-for-television special. I'm always in the spotlight of my own thinking. That's actually not, though, the way that we were made. It's not what God intended. It's not the way that God himself is. We worship the triune God, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches us that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are oriented toward one another, and they find joy in one another, and they love one another. This week I was interviewed uh, by a third-grade class. Uh, They started asking me a lot of wonderful questions, what I like about being a pastor, what I do as a pastor, all kinds of things like that. And then they started running out of questions, so they started just asking me anything they could think of. What's your favorite letter of the alphabet? It's been a long time since I've thought about the favorite letter of the alphabet. I told them it was M because that's the first letter in the word mother. So then... uh, um, There are all kinds of questions. So then they asked me, what's your favorite part of being a parent? I'm not sure I thought about that very much. Um, I was talking to third graders. I said, my favorite part of being a parent is hearing my children make jokes, and then we laugh together. Uh, It's not the best answer in the world, but it worked for the third graders. So uh, later in the day, at dinner table, at the dinner table that night, I was telling my children about this answer and this question, and, and my wife said, my favorite part of being a parent is watching my children be kind to one another. That's a really better answer than mine. <laughs> it's, it's true, isn't it? It's, there's something satisfying and life-giving about watching people be thoughtful and generous and kind and supportive and enthusiastic toward one another. This is actually one of the great privileges of being a pastor, is I get to see people do it in our congregation all the time, this kindness toward each other. I hear about it. I hear about the support and the care and the phone calls and the cooked meals and the visits. I hear about those things a lot. This is how the Godhead is. They delight in one another. They delight in in each other's glory and each other's wonder. There's just this turn toward each other. We human beings, though, that's not naturally how we are. We're born in a state of rebellion against God. We have chosen to go our own way, and we live our lives for ourselves naturally. But what changes us, this turning that Paul writes about, is our exposure to God's love. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Got it. Dear friends, since God so loved us, now what should it say? Right? What, What would make sense? Since God so loved us, we ought to love him. Right? Wouldn't that make sense? I love you, you love me, we're a happy... No, sorry. 
right? Wouldn't that make sense? Since God so loved us, we ought to love him. It's not what the passage says, though. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's loved us, John says, by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice who died on the cross for us, paying the penalty we owed because of our sin, and inviting all who believe to find life and forgiveness in him. And being loved, we now turn to love one another. When Kathy and I were first married and we moved to Dallas, we lived next door to a couple, Jeff and Jenny. They were newlyweds too. We were both there, all of us in a new city, um, trying to figure out what it looked like, how you lived in Dallas, where you shopped and, and where you banked and, and uh, where you went to church. Jeff one day was, was talking to me and he said, you know, one of the things that I like about being married is it means you get to take a friend with you wherever you go. <laughs> Jeff's an introvert. Um, he's actually he's a pastor in Richardson, Texas now. He's a fine preacher and writer. Um, but Jeff and his, his wife, they were trying to find a new church in this new city. And he said, you know, I walk into these Sunday school classes and I'm going to meet all these people and I have my best friend with me right next, door, next to me. And, you know, it just frees me up to introduce myself and to reach out to, to try to make new friends. There's somebody in this room who knows me really well and loves me anyway. He said that just gives me the confidence to reach out, to, to risk trying to form relationships with other people. You know, it doesn't matter. I, I, I'll express love for you. It doesn't matter if you, you like me or not because the, there's somebody right here who knows me and loves me really well. It's just, there's freedom in that. God's love in an infinitely greater way. He has demonstrated his love for us. There is a God who knows you really well. All of your faults, he knows. In fact, he made you. And he loves you. He demonstrated it by sending his son to be the Savior. Knowing that means you can reach out and love others. And one of the ways that you express that love for others is by working really hard. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are thankful to you for how, how um, clear and um, direct and... Um, earthy your word is it speaks to us about our hunger pangs and what they tell us about what we should be doing we thank you for the apostle paul and his directness to us lord jesus we do thank you that you speak to us through your word we are grateful chiefly that you are the demonstration of god's love he the Father proved how much he loved us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's such good news. Lord, uh, we pray in our congregation that you would raise us up as men and women who express love by hard work. That you would make us diligent in the tasks that you have given us. Father, free us from the deception that work is nothing or that work is everything. And Lord, I do pray too that
that even as you reform us in this way, that you would teach us as a congregation to genuinely and truly hold one another accountable and speak carefully and wisely to one another about how our deeds match our creeds. We are so thankful. There is so much promise in this passage, so much help and correction and guidance for us. Lead us, lead us, O Shepherd Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. As we come to the close of our service this morning, we're going to sing once more. Please stand.